Hello, my name is Daniel Calder and welcome to the Thus Spake Daniel Calder podcast. And today I am fortunate enough to be speaking with uh, Max Lawton, enfant terrible of literary translation and general man about town, who burst on the scene earlier this year with two translations of Russia's greatest writer, Vladimir Sorokin, or greatest living writer, Vladimir Sorokin, Therefore Hearts and Telluria. And that's just the tip of the iceberg of some of the things Max has planned. So I'm very glad to have the chance to speak with him today. Uh, thank you for coming on, Max. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> Great. All right. Well, um, I think probably some folk listening to this know who Vladimir Sorokin is, but some folk won't. So I'm wondering, um, can you just tell us, like, who is he and why should we care? Why does he matter? Yeah, I mean, um, like you said, he's Russia's greatest living writer. He's the best writer in Russia since Nabokov, I think. And, you know, Nabokov, I still consider to be a Russian writer, even though he wrote his greatest books in English. Um, and Vladimir Sorokin, why should you read him? He has... He's a writer with an astonishing amount of different modes, with a very particular vision and a very clean, muscular style. So uh, I think what's so cool about him tends to be these sorts of um, oppositions, these ways in which he doesn't quite fit into a singular mold. Um, and, you know, I think he has certain elements of his work that are quite extreme and shocking. He also has a Tolstoyan vein of mysticism and Christianity. He also has a sort of Nabokovian vision of how the world operates in terms of um, um, shapes, colors, patterns, uh, sheer, uh, a sheerly aesthetic vision of, of literature as such. Um, he also is just himself. <laughs> he, I think he, he's a flavor of writer, so to speak, that... Uh, that if you don't know, you haven't you haven't tasted it, and I think there are a few writers like that today. I think most writers fit into other people's um, modes of uh, literature, or they sort of um, yeah. So I guess he's just a writer who's unto himself entirely. There's no one else like him, so I think that's that's what makes it worth reading. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's great, and I'm sure we'll touch upon some of these themes as we talk about them. Um, so. And I think the point about the this kind of multitude of modes is yes. maybe one of the first things that you notice. Um, but then I'm also glad you mentioned this kind of mystical strand, because I think that's also very strong, um, maybe not talked about as much. But um, yeah, so, so how did you, um, so I'll say like about 10 or 11 years ago, well, I lived in Russia for like a long time. And yeah, yeah, your brother told me that. You speak Russian too. Right? Uh, yeah, I speak it a bit. And, and actually, that's a kind of... So uh, so I think about Vladimir Sorokin. I was kind of in... I probably read him about um, 1997. And it was there was a, a magazine called Glass. Yeah, of was, course, classic. Yeah, and I think that was one of the first places he appeared. And it was kind of like Soviet grotesque. Yes. And, and I read it. And it was a, it was an excerpt from Their Four Hearts... Uh, and it was pretty strong stuff, you know. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it was, and I was like, "Whoa!" I, but then, after that, while I was in Russia, he, his kind of his profile, it, it would it continued to build, and so I think it was maybe maybe nineteen ninety nine he published Blue Lard, uh, yes. which was a kind of maybe a breakthrough for him in terms of definitely yeah, and then after that, and then like in the early two thousands, I remember he was 
uh, writing screenplays for films. Um, I remember going to see a film called, I think, maybe just called Moskva. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, and then he, um, he also... He wrote well, it's a- actually, not to interrupt, but that movie is on, for those of you listening, it's on YouTube for free with good subtitles. Oh, I, I, had- that I showed it to my Russian class. Um, it's I don't know how you'd Google, how you'd search it on YouTube in a way that you could find it, but just if you search me Moscow, Zeldovich... 2000 that might pop it up but um it's really worth watching it's a cool movie yeah i mean, i'll try and maybe dig up the link um when i when yeah, I, yeah when it's, I, oh, I can it. send you well, that's great yeah and then uh, and then also we did um even a libretto for the the, Bol- the bolshoi and yeah. i remember this was a huge thing because i think it was the first new opera or new libretto commissioned by the bolshoi in a long time and um and so we'd gone from this kind of underground figure like probably 10 years earlier i think he hadn't even been published in russia yet to sort of librettos at the Bolshoi, but that also coincided with this outrage over Blue Lard, um, yes. which I think is often misrepresented. If it's like they often say it was um, a clone of, yeah, maybe you I don't can know. set us straight on that. I don't know. I've I've tried to say this in other places too, and I don't know why it's so eerily persistent, even in like. Um, programs of events we'll be doing this will pop up <laughs> what how did this get here yeah so everyone seems to think it's clones of stalin and khrushchev as we say in english but khrushchev as they say in russian but it's actually stalin khrushchev in an alternate reality of the soviet union having sex not not their clones the reason i think there's a cross-pollination because the first part of the book there are clones of famous russian writers but then the second part of the book is an alternate history so Okay, that probably explains it. But no, not clones. Don't write their clones. Yeah, and that that makes all the difference. It's totally okay if it's another universe. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know. So, uh, but anyway, that was um, that was hugely controversial. And I remember they erected a giant toilet. Yes. I, I think outside the Bolshoi, and they were throwing copies of Blue Lard in. Yeah, and actually, well, it's interesting because you you talk about how history books misrepresent things over time, and I think. In this case, there's a bit of a double misrepresentation, but the second error is quite a bit less grave. Actually, they were just pissed that the Bolshoi was putting on an opera with a libretto written by Sorokin. So they were throwing copies of all of his books into the toilet. And this was in 2003, so it was actually quite a bit after uh, Blue Lard had been published. But I think the thing that most attracted their ire was uh, the Stalin-Khrushchev sex scene. Although I'm not sure. You know, that just... How things come down to us, uh, according to you know the oral history that's yeah. not written down of uh, of current events, of almost current events, of soon to be twenty years ago events, uh, hard to say. Yeah, it's funny because I mean I was in Russia at the time, and but I never saw the giant toilet. But I remember uh, thinking maybe I should maybe I should walk down, you know. But I think they'd already like taken the toilet away um, by the yeah. time. But I think it was also like um, at the time like. Putin was starting to emerge because um, you know when he first came in it was like oh who's Putin and then there was this like strange youth movement called Moving Together yeah. and they were it was around that time and it was that sort of like oh we're going to kind of bring back values and stuff like this and I think Sorokin sort of like was pulled into that the, the sort of beginnings of this sort of like movement in Russia um, yeah and, and but you know the controversy was you know it's good for good for selling books sometimes. Um, yeah, I mean, well, that I think blue lard partially pulled 
Vladimir out of the underground, as he always says, but I think that um, notoriety also helps. <laughs> but I think then there's a complicated, there's a complicated sort of three-stage thing that happens in Vladimir's career, where uh, up until Blue Lord, he's really writing for the underground. You know, he wrote those screenplays that were produced in the early 2000s in the 90s, mostly. He couldn't write novels for the time being. Um, he has a famous seven-year pause after The Four Hearts. And then he gets very notorious uh, after Blue Lard and the Bolshoi debacle, writes Ice Trilogy, which I think has a somewhat muted response, even though I like it quite a bit. Um, but I think in Russia in particular, it had a, a muted response. Then he writes uh, The Blizzard, um, which is Tolstoyan, Chehovian, whatever you want to call it. It's playing with the classics. And I think, no, no, before that's Dave the Aprichnik. Dave the Aprichnik, um, Sugar Kremlin, then Blizzard. So after Ice Trilogy, um, he sort of definitely enters a different mode where he's not afraid of being more literary in a direct way, I think. And, and, and it's at that point, really, from 2006 or seven to now, it's been a gradually mounting wave of critical acclaim and acceptance. I would say even at, in 2005, like uh, philologists, as they say in Russian, would have, uh, nary a one would have accepted him into the Russian canon. But um, as time's gone on, they've accepted him more and more to the point that today uh, it would be just, no one would say that he should not be a part of the canon. You know, he's the only living writer who has a definite spot, I think. Yeah, it's... Um, it's interesting you mentioned that the Ice Trilogy had a more muted response, because that, that was the one I kind of, I became fascinated by that trilogy. Um, and I remember I used to go into Dom Kinigi, um on yeah, yeah, yeah. on the Arbat and, and look at it. And in fact, it's one of the few, you know, I'm quite, uh, when it came to reading in Russian, I thought, you know, there's people who speak it a lot better than me. So if I'm going to read Platonov, I'd rather Robert Chandler. Uh, you know, translate it, and then I'll I'll read his, his version, then mm. then try myself. But I remember I really wanted to read the Ice Trilogy, and I read um, Put Bro, mm. and it was fascinating. It was uh, extremely difficult uh, because um, it was full of uh, terminology about the tiger and mm. berries and different types of bushes and meteors, and I remember. But it was a fascinating experience. But even as I was reading it. I could tell, like, this is kind of, it's like a Silver Age novel, you know? It's like it's written in, in this style. It's like this um, exhumation of a literary style that doesn't exist. Yes. You don't see very much. And it was, it was very striking to me. And I think that's one of Sorokin's, like, uh, I mean, you said he writes in a lot of modes. I think that ability to sort of, like, mimic, or not even mimic, it's like he, he writes a new novel in a style that no longer exists. I think it is quite extraordinary. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually excited to try to do my own version of Ice Trilogy sometime. Jamie Gambrell did a very good job, but I think um, Jamie had an easy elegance to her writing, which I think I try to lean into the extremity of different modes. So I would like to, um, you know, really try to make uh, Broa Bro's Way, I think it's translated as, into an you know, it sounds sound like an early translation of Bulgakov or something from the 50s. And then and then to kind of lean into the Elroy rhythm of the, of the latter two books. Yeah. 
Yeah, that would be great. Um, so I'm curious, how did you... So earlier, so you mentioned Jamie Gamble and the Ice Trilogy, and those books, mm -hmm. um, they, they seemed to be a wave about 10 years ago. Like, mm -hmm. there was a bunch of translations. And mm -hmm. I had read uh, that first volume of the Ice Trilogy from despair that it would ever be translated into English. So I thought, all right, I'd better just read it in Russian. Yeah. And then suddenly I was like, oh, they're doing the whole trilogy in Russian. They did Daria Prichnik. They did the Blizzard. And then... And then it just stopped. And I think even the the blizzard turned up as a penguin 20th century or modern classic or something in the yep. UK. And I thought that's kind of wild that this guy is being published under the, the brand of a modern classic and, and yet it's just dried up. So I'm sort of curious, like, how did you um, how did you get in touch with, how did your kind of relationship with Sorokin begin? What drew you to Sorokin? Um, I think, you know, Vladimir said at the UCLA event that we did recently that it was the Angels who did it. Right. Uh, I, th I think there's something to that. I mean, I'd always wanted to read him. He was sort of the object of endless fascination for me learning Russian in college. Like you say, there were a lot of things that didn't seem necessary to read in the original or that were, you know, just not that interesting. <laughs> like, it would be weird. No one was going to, no one's going to learn Russian to read Pelyevin. Uh <laughs> Uh, and so I just had read about him enough, and I read enough of him in French to know that this was a major writer. And so throughout college, I would sort of peck my way through his work to the best of my abilities, read everything I could in French, which is a good number of books, actually. Um, then uh, I eventually got his email right out of college from a family friend. My mom made a movie with a Russian filmmaker whose friend is the owner of you know the uh, Terrace Club in the Hermitage? Yes, yeah. The Tristitva Moripiats or whatever, um, 3205. Um, he owns it, so he had Vladimir's email. And uh, I wrote him, sent him a 100-page chunk of Blue Lard, which was, I think, a little... It was what you would expect from a young guy, but I think there were some good instincts at play in it. Um... And as a result of that, he read it, sent it to his friends who read it, and um, then said he wanted to work with me. And then eventually, you know, over the next, from then to now, it's been six years ago, I just, you know, a very famous Russian writer wanted to work with me. So I just had to work my ass off, basically, to get my Russian into you know, as close to perfect as I, as I could, which it's not perfect. No one's Russian is perfect. Not even Russian's Russian is perfect. But, um, you know, make it really good to read a lot, to practice all the time, uh, listen to audiobooks sometimes for like two hours a day as I was reading along. Um, and then I also realized that Blue Lard was a hard one to start with, sort of like translating Ulysses before you translate Dubliners or Portrait. And so I translated... Nastya, Horse Soup, and Therefore Hearts before Return to Blue Lard. And then from we were kind of corresponding a few times a week initially, then more and more, sort of like every day. Um, and uh, I went to Russia two years into our collaboration, maybe three years even into our collaboration. And... Um, um, yeah, we just sort of hit it off, became buddies, and um, um, then it kind of kept progressing from there. 
we correspond even more. But, you know, the crazy thing is that I didn't ever doubt it. I never thought this is really not going to work out. I translated three novels all the way through before we got a publishing deal. <laughs> um, and I think it was just because it was, it was like a training camp, both for a translator and for a writer, you know, simultaneously. Because I think, I always say this because I write, but it seems to me that it's true. Um, translating is writing. You know, there's no difference. The only difference is when you're translating, you don't have to deal with ontological questions. You don't have to deal with structural questions of the text. Why this and not that? Uh, why this and not that? You just know the big questions, so you just have to deal with all the small questions of style and tone, etc., etc. Et so for me, it's just been an incredible experience in training. You know, and just it's like riding on a treadmill. It's sort of it's been like, it's been like going to writing boot camp. And that sort of continues, you know, with every additional project I do. I feel like it strengthens me, and I kind of feel my writing get more muscular, and I feel my ability to write become becomes an instrument that you sort of can control fully. Um, and then, so finally, four years into that whole thing, I got in touch with Edwin Frank, the NYRB editor, who I, I'd never emailed before that. I don't know why. I guess I thought they'd had a problem with NYRB, which they hadn't like some sort of falling out, which was just totally wrong. Um, I don't know where I'd gleaned such an impression. Um, then I got in touch with Will Evans of Deep Vellum, soon acquired Dalkey, and um, it was sort of off to the races. I managed to convince them to do eight books, which has now become, I think, even more like 12, right. um, which is everything, because it's, it's, a, it's successful. The vision I always had for it is kind of uh, coming to fruition because I, he's just a good writer. I don't think I, everyone, you know, if people give me credit, and I think I, I deserve credit for having faith and for putting in the work. But the the books were always there, and the books are great. So yeah, it's uh, it's great, and I'm I'm curious. Um, and so in the the process, how involved is Rock in these? So is he like reviewing your stuff and going, yeah, yeah. I, I like that? Because I, I I mean I've had a couple of books translated, and I. I I've only ever met one. I met the Polish translator once, but usually it just it disappears, and then like it comes back. It could be great, could be bad. I have no idea. I, I'm I'm sure they're great. I trust all those like translators. So I'm just curious about that. So is it quite a kind of collaborative effort that you're like translating things, sending it, he's reading it, giving comments? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I think like he picks his battles. He doesn't read everything. Uh, he, I mean, like he reads a lot, but I think. He tends to be more involved with newer texts. With older texts, he's maybe a little bit less concerned, it seems to me. But um, not with the norm. With the norm, he like actually specifically requested one of his friends to go over it with a fine-toothed comb. Um, but only one section, the famous uh, Dear Martin Alexievich section, which, of course, is a great favorite. Um, so he sort of will pick his battles. He likes looking at the swear words a lot. Right. <laughs> Uh, and like that makes sense, and he likes asking me questions about that. He, like he, sometimes he'll sort of he, a few times he's mentioned Frank Booth lines from Frank Booth in Blue Velvet, and said, "Can we make it that?" And I sort of go, uh, "Maybe." Right. <laughs> uh, and then so he can be. I think the thing he's he's always very helpful with everything. The two things I think he can sometimes have a very direct impact on the text are with gibberish. Sometimes I'll offer a neologism, and he'll offer a better one. Um, and he'll just, you know, give it to me. 
in English, but it's a neologism, so it's just gibberish. But it's, you know, Russian gibberish has to be different than English gibberish. Um, and then with the object world of Russian or Soviet life, that, <clears throat> that can be just totally uh, over my head. I've spent time in Russia, but, you know, it's like, uh, especially the so Soviet stuff, especially, to be honest. Like, um, I can't really think of any examples right now, but there's sometimes where certain terms have just gone out the window for uh, household objects or uh, official rituals or whatever. So yeah. that, that, that's very helpful. And especially, I mean, it's amazing how fast Russian has changed as compared to English, I think. The, the, the language of the 70s and 80s on display in Vladimir's early work is just gone. No one, no one talks like that anymore. Yeah, I was thinking, I mean, um, really, to, to even remember the Soviet Union now, you probably have to be in your 40s. Um, and now it's or fifties, and so it's a world that it's a world that's completely vanished. Yeah. Uh, and um, I remember when I went to Russia, it was like nineteen ninety seven, so it had only been gone for six years, and you could still feel it, you know. Um, yeah. But now it's like thirty years, and and there's a huge change, and and so, and and I, I was thinking too. So how did you decide on? So the first two books, there's like their four hearts from what like maybe wrote it in like the late 80s is that right he wrote it in 1991 he wrote the year okay. the soviet union fell so 1991 and then telluria which is like much more recent what is that when when's that one from 2013 okay so we've got almost like a 20 year gap between these well longer than 20 years between these two books so how did you how did you pick these two books as the ones to sort of reintroduce Sorokin uh to the english-speaking world the short answer is i didn't um, but I, I had a role in the process. Um, and I think it turned out very well. I don't, I think I've, I, if, if I had done it, I probably would have done Blue Lard and Therefore Hearts, but the good thing is Teluria is sort of a warm bath, um, where you kind of get into it slowly. The, the important thing for me in doing this whole project is to not neglect either side of Stroken's work. He's got the really extreme early stuff. And then he's got the much later, um, warmer, Baroque, mystical um, idiom he slips into. So I think to neglect either one of those would be to sort of uh, dispense with what makes him a great writer. So I think it's great because Therefore Hearts is a very, very, very extreme book. And Teluria is a, relatively speaking, uh, totally unextreme book. Um, so as a function of that, I guess, you know, it's a, it's a very nice combination because it's the two poles of his work are present in extremely legible fashion. Um, and I think actually it's probably better that it wasn't blue art because that's a book that's going to get a lot of people excited. Uh, so it's nice that the launch gets people excited, then blue lard gets people excited. And, you know, there's, there's all sorts of cool little Easter eggs too. And the releases down the road where we have to keep interest going, but I don't think it's going to be a problem. I think it's just, you know, it's like Bologna feels like on a slightly smaller scale, albeit, but, People are just excited and feel like it's a great writer they're getting to discover in real time. Yeah, I, uh, I was thinking too, uh, I even discussed this with my brother um, when he mentioned uh, that you, you'd, he'd contacted you and you were translating yeah. all these books. Um, that I thought, man, I would start with Blue Lark, to be honest. You know? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I would have too. Yeah, and I'm wondering, um, and also, so about like maybe 2011, I wrote an article for Publishing Perspectives about Sorokin, and it was really, I, I used to write about Russians who had not yet been translated that I wanted people to translate. 
And it was probably around the time, maybe it was around when the Ice Trilogy was coming out, but I remember writing about it. And that, over the years, that article would float around on the internet, and periodically people would write to me, like, asking for information about Sorokin. And about, like, about a year, I don't know, a year, a year and a half ago, some dude wrote to me from a small press. And um, I think he'd been con contacted about publishing their Four Hearts. And it, it wasn't um, it wasn't the Delkey Archive. Um, and he was worried. Uh, I think he was worried because the book is so extreme. Really? Yes. That um, he was because uh, it, it was sort of vague. It was just sort of like, did I have any thoughts on publishing? Uh, you know. And, oh, I wish. I mean, I probably shouldn't say who it is. Yeah, I, 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 I'm not going to say who it was, but um, but like, and I thought, well, that's interesting. And then, but at the same time, it was because you know. I think back in the nineties, or if you think back to like um, like a book like American Psycho, mm -hmm. it used to be in the eighties in particular. The dynamic was okay. Um, there's these like religious conservatives. They're against you know they they hate these things and you know and so you could have a kind of success like Scandal was a way to success. Like this is the most extreme book ever. Uh, you better read it. Uh, but I think he was like worried essentially that like if you published Their Four Hearts, it was so extreme. It would have like really negative blowback uh, for his press, um, and so I'm just wondering. And I, you know, when I read it, it was actually when I read it like when I read that excerpt in Glass all those years ago. I thought, man, that's that's nasty. Um, and then I was a bit like, I ordered it, and then I thought, you know, I'm just going to read it now, right? And it's yeah. actually quite funny, right? I mean, it's, it's hilarious. It's really yeah. funny, and because I, I was thinking, oh, this is this this might be like a really grim slog through just like atrocities you know and late soviet decline and horror and and but actually it's 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 pretty funny uh, and it's a light read it's a, yeah, it's it, a light. it really is and i would read it in the morning when i got up and and like you know just like before i started work i'd be like you know like half an hour bits of rocking in and like, so it's, it's kind of outrageous um and so i'm just i'm just curious but it is like it does like it does it does go to dark places um yeah uh, with this kind of like dark humor and so i'm wondering were you were you at all like concerned like oh man if we go out with this book first and people like re react to it badly then then we're done or were you like nah i, I think it'll be okay i don't well i mean no not really i wasn't i mean maybe i think the russian current events have contextualized it well um unfortunately because it's horrible that all this is happening but i think people read it more the way that it's meant to be read given what's happening now and not just as like vladimir's sick fantasies it was sort of like wow actually he's i think you know i've, I've said this before but it bears repeating that i really think it's about a sort of deliz and guattari idea of this sort of you know, in uh, Anti-Oedipus, they write about the libido of capitalism, basically. I think Vladimir is writing about the libido of totalitarianism. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a libido that still exists in Russia today, and it's still equally relevant. And I think sometimes people miss that. Like, some Irish critic was uh, interviewed me about something, about, about the work, and he was sort of obsessed with the idea that it was um, a novel of the 90s. And I was like, where? I don't see that at all. <laughs> you know, it doesn't see it doesn't have anything to do with the '90s. Maybe maybe some small hallmarks that you could sort of genealogically draw on, but um, 
to me, it just seems like a sort of timeless book about Russian life, like uh, The Foundation Pit. Um, so was I worried? Not really. I was more worried about, you know, the little things every translator worries about, the different ways you could render a weird bit of slang, um, missing, missing a certain contextual shade. Um, and the other thing to say is that there aren't really any safe books that Vladimir has, you know. Right. <laughs> Uh, like, uh, let's, let's see, um, the short stories that are coming out next year, the very graphic necrophilia story, the, um, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of bad stuff. Then, you know, Blue Lord had the quite brutal scene between Hitler and Stalin's daughter at the end of the narrative. Then, you know, the norm, I guess, is relatively okay. There's the incest in Marina's 30th Love. So there aren't really any safe books. Uh, and that's that's because, you know, as Vladimir always says, I grew up in a country that was soaked in violence in the kindergartens, on the streets, in the high schools, in military training, in colleges, etc., etc., etc. So I don't think that I was ever really worried. You know, I think people somehow read... Um, literature and translation differently with more context. Uh, and, and, you know, I think people knew how to read it and they, uh, they read it correctly. <laughs> so congrats, congratulations reading public. You read their four hearts correctly and, um, you understood it. And, and again, you know, I think it is, uh, it is also a book about what's happening in, um, Ukraine now. It's actually a very, very, very potent metaphor. Yeah. for the whole the whole thing what i would say is you could compare it to hard to be a god you know um sort of has a similar similar valence the film more than the, the book i think the, the the idea of timelessness is it's an interesting one because i kind of started reading it and i think if you read like uh, the ice for example yeah to, almost immediately there are, there are references that you know you know you're in 1990s moscow and and there's even like you know gangsters and gangster slang and yeah, references, yeah, yeah. you know. But therefore, hearts, it's it's not immediately clear that you're in the Soviet Union. And I still don't exactly know when it's meant to take place. Yeah, and there's it was a, there's a, maybe scenes when they're in some central committee building and they describe you know Soviet, um, but like yeah, and then but even then it's sort of fairly. I mean, I guess it was like late Soviet. It was all collapsing, so maybe like the the. It all rotted away, and all that was left of this edifice. But I agree; it, 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 it's not like you don't you don't need to like know vast amounts about the Soviet Union to read it. In fact, you don't really need to know very much at all. Um, no, and I, I think sometimes people spoil their own readings, and when they go, when they sort of, I don't know. I've, I've some people have read it. That's sort of been the more negative reception when it's been like, oh, this is quite befuddling. It's a novel of its time, and I think that's like, no, no, it's it is befuddlement is the point. <laughs> You know, um, that's it's not it's not befuddling. Uh, it's it's about shapes that you don't understand, but you can still see. Yeah, it's. Uh, and I also got to say, I, I love the uh, the liquid mother. Um, I just yeah, like, yeah. and and that was like, and what really impressed me there was the, the the dialogue actually of the mother and the son. It was this kind of savok, this kind of like stream of platitudes, and yeah. I, I heard that so many times. Um, you know, nice people, but it was just, it really captured the way people talked. And and then, of course, these, like, terrible things happened. But, um, I mean, that stuff I thought was great. Um, so, yeah, so, 
That's about anyway. Um, Telluria though. Um, so did you translate their four hearts and Telluria back to back, or was it like you came to Telluria later? Because to me, if you read their four hearts, it's kind of like one thing. Um, yeah. Whereas Telluria is this like real polyphony of like multiple styles. Um, and when I was reading it, like you know, I just sat in and I read their four hearts. Mm. But with like Telluria, I almost read it more like poetry. Because mm. like I would stop after each section. I might read some of them twice. Some of them were more narrative than others. Um, and then there's this kind of, some of them are like parodies or uh, pastiches of particular types of writing. So um, seems to me like it'd be quite a challenging book to, to translate. Uh, so did you do that kind of close to Therefore Hearts or had you translated quite a bit of stuff by the time you came to that? I think it didn't, that was, um, yeah, no, that was, that was much later. Because I did their four hearts, I did so basically I started working with Vladimir in twenty sixteen, fall of twenty sixteen, six years ago. Then I had moved on to Horsoup and Nastia, which I first went out to New Directions suggesting they should just put them out in a little book together. Which still is not that bad of an idea, but you know, now they're coming out in a big short story anthology, which is also great. Um, and then after that, let me think, then I did Blue Lard the year, the following year. Um, so that would have been, I'm getting all my years mixed up. So 20, so spring of 2017 was when I did Horse Soup and Nastia. Fall of 2018 was when I did Their Four Hearts. That's right. Then 2019 from January to, um, September is when I did the following two-thirds of Blue Lard, and then um, the following, really the year after that was when I was doing Tuluria. Okay. Maybe a bit less than a year, but about a year. So, um, how, so like I said, to me it looks like it's this like polyphony, this multitude of styles. Yes. How challenging was that to translate? Because, I mean, I was, I was enjoying it, and then about halfway yeah. through I thought, man, this is like, this is like you know every couple of pages you have to change the voice um, yeah. uh, so i'm just curious about how did you go about tackling that well i sort of felt like i had freedom um i felt like i had freedom because i was working with vladimir he could you know sort of co-sign my choices um and i also it's not a world that exists mm -hmm. so these are all idioms that he's made up <laughs> fully you know they don't really call forth anything in the imagination some of them some of them do but some of them are really just a product of uh, authorial delirium and i'd say most of them are like that so in that situation the translator is also entitled to and in fact obligated to have his own delirium so i think it was actually that was one of the lightest lighter experiences of translating because it was just so fun and i felt like i was just you know collaborating with him and, 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 you know, whenever he would go in a certain direction up to a certain point of extremity, I would do the same. But it would just be a different point because it's a different language. Yeah, I like the term authorial delirium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think, again, sometimes people have... The cool thing about Telluri is I think that was the one where I think more of the choices were extreme. So what the dialects, 
some people don't think you should ever use dialects in translation, which, fine, but okay, then there's no way to translate this book because a whole bunch of it is written in, like, scas, right? Mm -hmm. And the sort of 19th century style of semi-oral literature. Uh, well, guess what's the great thing? We have American English language scas, Faulkner, right? So you kind of play with that register when Vladimir is playing with scas. Um, so, and that was really the most important piece of the puzzle because without that sort of rural, sing-songy narrative quality to it, I think the book wouldn't have worked. Yeah. Um, the, the, the Telluria, so didn't Dugan write a book about Telluria? Didn't, isn't that a, from Dugan? We don't have to talk about Dugan if you don't want to. I was just um No, I mean, I think that, I know there's, I don't really know that much about what that was. I think it was this, I think part, part of it, my understanding is part of it is Vladimir parodying some weird, stupid utopian idea that Dugan has. Right. Because I remember when I read it, I, I looked around. I thought, "Oh, am I going to have to read Dugan?" You know, to, to kind of like. Yeah. To, and then I thought, I just can't be bothered. I was even. I, no. I, spoke, I spoke to a friend of mine who who's read Dugan, and he goes, oh, "I just don't. Nah, you don't. Don't bother. Don't bother." And I mean, obviously, he's, you know, there's context in which you probably should should read Dugan. But I, I thought Vladimir Vladimir hasn't read Dugan. There's oh, like uh, right. he would he would he would agree with this. If he's making fun of it, he's making fun of it as an image. That's the other reason this book wasn't actually as hard to translate as you might think, is everything operates on a very surface level, right? And Vladimir constantly would tell me not to delve into symbolism in my translation. What he meant by that was if something was sort of incomprehensible on the surface, to render the incomprehensibleness in that parallel mode, not to sort of cipher it for the reader in a symbolist way. And, and what this meant is it was just intensely liberating, right? I was just playing with funny shapes, uh, mysterious shapes, uh, confusing shapes, and, and I could do that in the same way that Vladimir does. Because Vladimir is often not thinking about things. At, no, I mean I don't. I don't want to say. I think he's sometimes, and especially in Teluria, I think it's like cartoons. You know, I think this book is Looney Tunes, uh -huh. but it's like geopolitical Looney Tunes. Do you have a, like a favorite section? Yeah, I mean, there are definitely. I think my favorite section to translate. I'd be interested what your favorite section was too of the of the of the translation. My favorite sections to translate. My favorite sections probably to read. I would say number one would be Magnus, the the Crusades. I like that chapter uh -huh. a lot. <clears throat> um, I also really like the first chapter. Then to translate all, all of the sort of weirdo ones were really fun because you get, you know, it's just like highly kinetic poetry. The robots chapter, I was um, fiddling with Celine's voice in that. I really love all this um, sort of tragic Skaz chapters, like um, <laughs> where the guy, the, the liquid crosses that get lost. Um, and um, I think it's liquid crosses or something. Um, the liquid cutters, liquid cutters, I think. Mm -hmm. And some piece of incomprehensible machinery has been lost from a factory. And um, <laughs> and the guy writing the letter asks to have a tellurium trip to go meet his deceased brother and find out where he's hidden them. Um, or, I, 
I mean, I really liked all the chapters like that. The cleaning lady at the hotel who listens to, at the love hotel, who listens to her guests have sex. Uh-huh. Um, the robot chapter, like I said, the, I like the chapters written from the perspective of, I think, a smarty pants. Remember the one where it's like sweaty Robin? Yeah. Yeah, that one is super weird and a lot of incomprehensible little bits of gristle. Mm, I think I like the ones that were the most challenging to translate. I think they were the ones where I felt like I could sort of <sighs> differentiate myself the most in a sense. <laughs> yeah, so I should say just for people who haven't read it, which is probably most people listening to this. <laughs> I mean, um, <laughs> so Tellurio has like 50 chapters, I think, of a kind of yep. future <laughs> world that's sort of like fallen apart. So Russia's fallen apart, but Europe's also become very fragmented. And there's uh, all of these like miniature states and statelets, uh, but still some quite advanced technology. And a lot of the, and there's this kind of a tellurium, which is a material that uh, if you have it hammered into the top of your skull, it can give you kind of wonderful visions and experiences or, or it can kill you. Is that a, a, fair, a fair summary? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think actually, now that you mention it, maybe my favorite chapter, not from a translation perspective, but from a content one, I love the one about the guy who spent 20, 10 years with Jesus by way of tellurium nails. That's yes, that was a great one. I also like the one with the dogs. Uh, it's like a, it's like yeah, a yeah. chapter 22. It's like a play with these like, sort of two high, like, highly like uh, articulate dogs um, arguing with each other um, by like eating flesh. And, uh, and also the chapter towards the end, um, where they go to this kind of Stalin world. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, that's a great one. It is a lot. It's, that, that's actually a direct parody of Dao, the movie. Really? Yeah. Um, because, you know, Vladimir wrote the screenplay, then Ilya ditched it, and um, decided to make this weird Stalinist Disneyland. So that's, yeah. what, that's what that's about, actually. So, as you were translating these two books that were kind of written over, like, 23, 24 years apart, um, what did you see as... Uh, connecting them, or how had Sorokin grown? What had, what did they share in common? It's kind of interesting that these two books from these two kind of ends of his career appear simultaneously in English. Like Russians would have not have this experience. They would have, in, yeah, you know. But I think here we have this very different experience. Okay, here's two facets. Um, so I'm curious. Like, did you see anything uh, uniting them across the years? Vladimir said something really cool at one of the events we did. He said that um, his experiences after Raman, he began to parody um, Russian writers who didn't even exist in the 19th century. So it seems to me that um, some of Vladimir's books are um, ready-mades created out of extant materials, right? So... Um, Raman is a great example of that, Marina's 30th Love. Um, but Therefore Hearts and Telluria both seem to me like they're ready-mades in the Duchampian sense of non-extant materials. Um, and I think that that's a, kind of an abstract way to say it. <laughs> no, I like it. Uh... But I think that, I, I think that he's, playing, he's, he's playing with modes of literature that don't actually exist, but playing with them as if he were writing postmodern commentaries thereon, you know? I think that, that that's what really brings these two books together. And that's why I felt like I had that intense degree of freedom with 
with both of them. Uh, you mentioned, so you were on tour with them recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we, we had two weeks together. Uh-huh. Um, more, 16 days. New York, um, Alan, San Francisco, LA. Very, very fun. Um, great adventure. So what's it, what's it like going on the road with Vladimir Sorokin? Oh, you know, I mean, I think it was just... Um, it's hard to say without delving into cliches or banalities. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're great buddies at this point, which I'm very uh, grateful for. And, um, you know, it's just sort of to see his mind digest America was very fun. Right. Uh, did he, are there any, so that's an interesting thought, is his mind digest America. Um, were there any, so outside of these events, were there any things that he really wanted to do? Like, did he want to go to a giant Walmart? Or he wanted to go to MoMA. He wasn't actually interested in like American kitsch stuff. Okay. And I had to sort of push him to do some of it. Like I got us pop tarts, right. which he was he then I think loved. Right. And uh, what about in the actual? I watched one of the videos and I noticed that people were often treating him almost like a. They were asking him a lot about the war in Ukraine, for example. Yeah, yeah, like, he, he hates that. <laughs> right. And it, I thought, like, it's because maybe... So I have this theory that Russian... Well, Russian writers who become popular in the West, they have certain roles they're expected to play. One is the dissident, one is the prophet. And and I felt like people were, like, even asking him, how is the war in Ukraine going to end and stuff like that? And I thought, well, it, it, it seems yes. kind of uh, a, a rather difficult question to answer. Yeah, I mean, th people do that a lot with him. I mean, I think that's one of the funny things, you know, um, in a certain sense, going on tour with someone like that is seeing is seeing behind the Wizard of Oz. But then it's not that there's a, just a little man behind it, but that there's another Wizard of Oz who's just a lot different. Um, and one of the things you find out about him is that he absolutely hates questions like that because it just um, one it sort of boils his work down to a sort of weird kind of intentional prophesizing. To I he doesn't know you know he's he's writing art he's not writing social commentary and um you know he has he hates the war in Ukraine he hopes Putin falls but he doesn't know uh, what's going to happen <laughs> and uh, it was very funny to actually con to sort of bear witness to those constant questions was he like patient with them or did he lose patience um no he was patient. To a certain extent, he did get he does get tired of questions. I think. <laughs> right. I remember. So I was going to um, just ask a little bit about some of your other projects. Then, so uh, yeah, yeah. So you've got all of this Sorokin coming. So I think that's fantastic. Um, but there's some other stuff you you're working on. Could you want to talk about that a wee bit? Sure. I mean, there's there's so much at this point that it's 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 hard to know where to start but uh -huh. there are a few there are a bunch of so andre on the untranslated has an amazing blog that i really really recommend and his twitter's great too but um he has been sort of someone i've gone to for recommendations and um advice for a long time we're we're texting buddies and um very wise very wise man great taste very difficult taste sometimes, um, but 
So as a result of his sort of list of favorites, I've translated big chunks of three uh, books in particular, Schattenfroh, a German book with my co-translator, Matthias Friedrich, who's a great translator of uh, Scandinavian literature himself into German. You need a German native speaker for this for sure, because it's sort of like, it makes Telluria look so easy. Right. <laughs> it's so hard, um, but it's great. Then I'm working on this uh, Antonio Moresco, great Italian writer, translated a big chunk of the first book in this trilogy, um, Games of Eternity. And um, the, the Italian writer and translator Francesco Pacifico is um, editing that, which is, which is super cool. Um, and then beyond that, so those are sort of these pie-in-the-sky projects because they're very expensive. Mm-hmm. So you just sort of send to publishers and hope that someone will have, you know, high five figures to spend on on the translation alone. Then there's some sort of smaller projects which um, I'm excited about as well. I'm working with Jonathan Littell, who's an, I mean, this isn't a smaller project. This is a huge project, but just the books are small. Right. I translated his book, The Damp and the Dry, which is a little book about a Belgian Nazi, uh, De Grelle, which is coming out from OR Books next year. I'm going to be translating his other novel, his second novel, An Old Story, which is going to be just uh, a dream come true, because for me, The Kindly Ones is one of the best books ever. <laughs> um, so that's for sure. I'm trying to think which ones I can actually talk about. Let me pull up my list. I've got a huge list in my phone of, um, right. of you know, just pretty much my the head destruction list, <laughs> the brain destruction yeah. list. Um, the the ones the thing is usually you can't you can talk about stuff that is um, that you have decided to do, but to the extent that another that other people are involved, you can't talk about it yeah. until it's it's funny how that works. Yeah, then, I mean, I, oh yeah, I can talk about this, actually. Celine, um, I really, Ian Sinclair, who is a, sort of a mentor to me, he wants to work with me on a complete translation of Guignol's Band, which is a great London novel, and to sort of render it and have Ian edit it, sort of, and put in some particularly British turns of phrase, or just make it Ian-y, or make it Celine-y, but as seen through Ian mm-hmm. and my spectacles. That would just be an, you know, such an awesome, an awesome project. Uh, there, okay, so this I can semi talk about this Turkish writer Oğuz Atay, um, really great writer. My pal and collaborator Ralph Hubble, whose translation of Atay's stories "Waiting for Fear" is coming out from NYRB in twenty twenty three, I think. He's a great translator. He and I are going to collaborate on translating a couple of Atay's novels, I believe, which should once those are very long as well, so. It's a little bit of a mystery when that's going to happen. <laughs> um, you know, there's some, there's some also even more pie-in-the-sky projects that I haven't even pitched, but like Guillotin's um, later novels, which are like Finnegan's Wake mixed with Sod. I would love to get a crack <laughs> right. at, but no one's going to pay for those ever, I don't think. Uh-huh. And then as for Russians, everyone always wants to know what Russian novels I would translate. You know, the two Alexei, Alexei Tolstoy's, um, I would do The Silver Prince and Peter the First, or Peter the Great, I guess. But I think it should be translated Peter the First, really. But 
I think it was mistranslated as Peter the Great. Um, those are two novels with super kitschy historical language, like the language I play with in Telluria. So that would be, I think, a lot of fun. Um, and I think there's some chance, though of course it's politically complicated, Limonov's early novels, someone wants to do them. We'll see what ends up uh, happening with that. Limonov was a motherfucker of a guy, but you know his early books are really good, so we'll see. Yeah, <laughs> and I th- sorry. No, I was gonna say I think Limonov's an interesting. I was fascinated by Limonov, um, and I read a couple of his things. There's another book I read in Russian. Was I read the Book of Water, which I think he wrote when he yeah. was in, when he was in prison, and but you know he was like a kind of deeply unpleasant guy. Uh, you know, maybe like many authors in the past. Um, but yeah, so, but you say there's someone actually interested in Lomonov, or is that something you're interested no, in? No, someone is interested, okay. um, which is interesting. Um, yeah, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see what happens with that. Um, I mean, it's me, Eddie, is the one that's really great, that should be in print. Um, and, and, but I, I, the good thing is he wasn't alive for the invasion. But the bad yeah. thing is that he is very tied up in this toxic nationalism issue. Even though his most famous book is about being an emigrant in New York and having sex with dudes, so you know. Yeah, yeah. you managed to. Yeah, and have you read Diary of a Loser? Diary of a Loser, I have read. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I really like that one as well. I thought that, that was, was good. Yeah. So. That one's not going to get published, though. I could say because it's much. The content is much more aligned with the later issues. Yeah. That there, there are a few writers like that. I mean, Russian culture has now been kind of poisoned by this. Not in like some, oh, cancel culture, but in like, ooh, do I really want to be complicit with these figures who are doing these, you know, there's, it's such a cancer, this whole, this whole awful war. And it's um, eating up big chunks of the culture. Yeah. So it's really, really, really sucks. So I hope Putin dies soon and the, and the war ends. Yeah, well... Oh, and then I should probably, I should probably say, the last thing I'll say is then my, I have my own stuff, which hopefully, it's been doing the rounds, I think it's, you know, it's interesting, it's, um, I think I've done something interesting with my big novel called Progress, and then I've got a bunch of short stories that I kind of want to put out in illustrated collections, similar to what Dalkey's doing for Sorokin, um, you know, that's hopefully going to come in the next couple of years, and, uh, We'll see, but it's embarrassing that if you're not a published writer, I think it's like talking about masturbatory habits. <laughs> you just kind of like say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's there, but uh, then leave it at that. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I think the the scale of what you're working on is fascinating. Um, you're only picking super interesting books, um, so that's the goal. Yeah, uh, and I think it requires uh, there's this kind of it requires a degree of. You know, I mean, sometimes I look at your Twitter and it's like, man, you, you don't pick the easy ones. I'll just say that. you <laughs> only interested in the most, like, like very challenging, um, and, but very interesting books. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll be keeping an eye out, not only for the Sorokin, but for these other things you're doing. So. Thank you, yeah. I mean, for me, it's just a question of um, holding my own interest. Uh, I don't know. I I'm not good at doing stuff just for money or just for, I don't know. I just, I, I really need to hold my own interest. And I, I started translating out of love, you know, for Vladimir and Vladimir's work. Not, for, not in that sense, but like, um, and 
I think that's the best way to do it because if I'm I don't I don't know how to translate something I don't think is great because then you have to get in the problem of <laughs> this is not a good sentence. What do I do with this? Mm-hmm. Do I make it bad? <laughs> you know? Do I make it good? Is that a good translation? So translating mediocrities for for a paycheck seems to me like it'd be a uh, be much more difficult than translating the difficult great books that I want to do. So. All right. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. Yeah, um, yeah perfect. Thank you so much yeah. for having me, Daniel. Yeah, no, thank you, Max. It's been a pleasure. And, uh, yep. Yeah, so good luck with everything, and uh, Cheers. I'll be keeping an eye out for what's next.